I'm going to move on to our material for today. We're going to talk about Elisha. Now, remember, if you've been here, there was Elijah, who was this huge prophet figure. He was like the spiritual leader of the uh, people of God, of the Israelites. And then, uh, then came Elisha, who came after him. So Elijah was told by God to appoint Elisha. And even though Elijah could raise the dead and call down fire from heaven and do some really amazing supernatural miracles, the Bible tells us that Elisha was twice as powerful as Elijah. So uh, the ancient Israelites would look to these stories of Elisha for, uh, man, this, this is a guy who got it. This was a very powerful human being, and God used him in huge ways. And so you look at Elisha, and we can see uh, how can we connect with God? What does God want from us? What does it look like to be a man or woman of God? And uh, then we understand God, and we understand humanity. We understand interacting with each other by looking at this um, amazing uh, example for us. Elisha, and, and so they would talk about these stories. Now, when I say story, uh, you can use uh, a story and account interchangeably, like for me, real people, real places, real events, but at the same time, and this is where it's a little weird for us modern Western uh, Americans, uh, we would typically say, okay, is this story mythical and symbolic? Or is it actual with, like, details? And, and we take in, you know, differently, like, okay, that's that's interesting story with the details. Or let's look into this as a myth. I think that if you were to ask the ancient rabbis, did this really happen or is it mythical, they would probably say yes. Like, yes, it really happened, and yes, it's symbolic. And our modern Western minds, like, explode. Like, how can, how can that? But that's the way they looked at it. And so we look at the stories. When I look at these stories, I get the most out of them when I look at them as the ancient rabbis did, both as real accounts and break them apart symbolically. And and when we do that, like the ancient, even the writers of the New Testament, that's how they looked at those stories, as both literal and symbolic, Um, which just sounds crazy coming out of my, my mouth. But when we look at that, we will find this story that we're talking about and, and also, man, like this story and then next week's story, they're like inexhaustible. Uh, just, just you can break them down so many ways. Now, now scholars, people much smarter than I, uh, talk about motifs. And a Bible motif is a theme consistent throughout the Bible. And this story that we're going to read today uh, has so many of these like Bible motifs, things that God wants us to know about humanity, about living with each other, about relying on Him and who He is as our God. And so I'm going to cover a few of these, but what I really hope is that then you'll introduce to this story, you'll take it, and you'll pray about it, you'll contemplate, you'll meditate, and, and you'll let this story read you and let God speak to you in other ways through this story. I am just scratching the surface. I mean it. I could spend six months walking through the little details of this story. Instead, I will be spending about 20 minutes. So um, let me get to reading it, and then we'll talk it through. Now, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, or the company of the... So think of that as like a little gang, the sons of the prophets. They were the prophets, okay? uh, the, The wife cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. 
And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So this prophet has died, leaving his family with nothing but a loan. And the creditor is coming, and as payment, he's going to take this widow's two kids away to be his slaves for the rest of their life. So she's about to be left with nothing. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of olive oil. And then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels, borrow, borrow jars from all your neighbors, empty jars, and not too few, so a lot of them. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So you get the picture of what happened here. She gets all these empty jars from her uh, neighbors, and she just starts pouring this one jar of oil, which becomes kind of like, you know, Mary Poppins' bag. It just keeps, like, it just keeps pouring, and they keep setting next, 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 next. Now, does that kind of remind you of a miracle that Jesus did? Kind of like the fish and the loaves, where just you just keep, and then finally, it, um, the last jar that she brought in, uh, it's filled, and then drip, drip, drip. You know, no more oil, and now she has all these jars of oil, which she could then sell to pay off her debts and then to live on the rest. So this is that miracle that God did through Elisha for this woman, and we are invited to break it down and talk about how it applies to our life. And that's certainly what the ancient uh, followers of God, the tribal uh, Israelites, did as they walked along the road, as they sat at campfires. They would pick these stories apart for how it applies and what it means and how does it help us develop our thinking about what it means to be human, what it means to follow God, all that stuff. So I'm going to look at a few themes and a few Bible motifs this morning. And hopefully you can apply some of it to your life and I'll try to help. And then you take this story and keep unpacking it because it's inexhaustible. This story is incredible. Okay, so first thing I see that jumps out to me. This story, and this isn't a fun one. This story, along with many other stories in the Bible, invite us to, it invites us to rethink our circumstances. To rethink our circumstances, there's an understanding baked into this story that bad things happen to good people. So this story invites us to evolve in how we interpret the world because in those days, it was widely believed that what you had in your life was sort of a transactional repercussion or um, result of what you did or didn't do for God and for others. In other words, you were always getting what you deserved. It was transactional. If your crops came in good, it was because you pleased the God, the gods. 
If there was a drought or if you were sick, it's because it was judgment because you displeased the gods. And so there was always this like trying to do enough, trying to be enough, trying to give enough. And you would scour your life and anything that was there that you didn't like there was ultimately a result of something bad that you did. This story invites us to evolve. Now, are we still like that? Of course. That's why people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? That's why people say, what did I do to deserve this? That's why we wonder, what did did she do that, that, man, it's just not fair? It's this idea or this expectation that somehow we're going to get what we deserve. Now, certainly... The Bible says we reap what we sow, and that that from a larger perspective, uh, what we do does have some reciprocal effect. But this story tells us not everything in your life is there as a direct result. There's nothing in this story to suggest that this, this, this prophet who died, the prophets in Elisha's day were, were just, there was a handful of people who were getting it right who were really running hard after God. And this guy died early, and he left his wife and and two kids with nothing, and this was a horrible tragedy. And and everything we have is is that this, this was a good and godly family. And Elisha could have spoken anything into this. He could have given them any insight. Any way to understand it, but he almost dismisses like he doesn't even deal with the fact that something bad happened to someone good. Because in the Bible, it invites us to evolve past this transactional thinking. And I don't have the magic bullet to go with that, like, like to, to pick you up. It's just understand that not everything bad in your life is there because God wants it there or because you deserve it. And sometimes there's a release there just to know it, it, just, it just happened because it happened. And it's not my fault. And it's not your fault. All right, let's look at the second deal here because this is, this is a big one. First, bad things happen to good people for no apparent reason. <clears throat> sometimes it just, and, and also good things happen to bad people for no apparent reason. And sometimes good things happen to good people for no apparent reason. The prophet, Elisha, doesn't try to offer insight. He offers to help. This is a guy who could have spoken into the mysteries of the world. He doesn't offer insight. He doesn't say, well, I'll be thinking and praying for you. He says, what can I do to help? The man or woman of God is available to actually help. This is a motif. This is a theme in scripture. It's the idea of the follower of God or the follower of Jesus being available to actually help. Here's what James says. James 2. What good is it? This is, this is a painful, like this is a punch in the gut. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, 
Oh, I'll be thinking about you and praying for you. But does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. See, for James, if you're never available to actually help, your faith is useless, even useless to your soul. Now, that's harsh. Now, here, let me, let me talk a little bit about that, though. You can't be available to help everybody with everything. Like, you can't. You can't. You would be a shell. You would be fried if you were always able to say, what can I do to help, and then always do that. Like, if you're available to everybody, you're not really available to anybody. You're fried. Your family doesn't get to see you because you're always off doing something to help somebody. You're, you're enabling a, a bloodsucker who's just trying to use you. Like, the martyr complex is not godliness. But if you're never available, and this is where I think, like, like this is for me, this is my application you can't be available to do something about everything. But if you're not doing something about anything, and if you're never available, then, then you probably have to think it through. If you can never look at somebody and say, how can I help you and truly be available for that, you might need to look at your life. And this is, this is like, this is my, here, here's my word from that. In suburban America, especially for, for young, younger families, if you have kids that are still growing up in the house, the number one battle, the number one attack in suburban America is the, the number one obstacle to your spiritual growth is, is the assault on your time. There is so much that, so much opportunity that you have, so much out there that you, that you can go to, that you can be a part of that's, that's really good and sometimes feels necessary. And if you let it by saying yes to everything you feel like you should do or that is necessary or that you need to do, you're not going to have anything left to give to anybody, especially if it's spontaneous. I mean, and I said, I'm in with you, okay? Because I know what it's like. The, the, the coach calls the practice, or there's this clinic that would give you great exposure or give your kid exposure politically to the coaches for this. Or socially, man, there's this group of people that you really want to connect with and you really, and, or, or your boss has this opportunity for you. And if you say no to these things, it's going to put your kids at a disadvantage to the families that say yes. There's this opportunity in this school that would be great to have on, on the transcript, resume, whatever, on the application for the college thing. And there are going to be kids that say yes to this because there are some families and there's somebody inside your company that will say no to nothing to get an advantage. And if you say no, you're going to be in a disadvantage. But you're going to have to say no to have any margin. There are always going to be people willing to run their families and their souls rampant. Like they are going to run it into the ground to get the advantage for this thing that God doesn't care about. 
And, and I'm in this with you. I, I am in this with you. I went to like 80 youth sports events this year so far, not counting practices. I am in this with you. I know how hard it is to say no to something that's going to give you or your kid some kind of advantage and there's going to be somebody that's willing to run their family and their soul into the ground by saying yes to all this stuff. But if we do, see Elijah, Elisha, Elisha, he burned his plows to say yes to God. He burned his plows. He had, he had 12 oxen. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He was a farmer. He had 12 oxen. He worked the land. And when it was time for him to go do something for God, he used the plowing equipment to create a fire to burn the oxen. He gave the oxen away as food to those in need. He didn't have anything left. He was just ready to go. He was completely available to God. That's not realistic for us. But if we are so busy that we could never look at someone in need and say, how can I help you? then we're not really offering up ourselves to God. They're missing out, and we're missing out. And the truth is, for your neighbor, I don't care if you're on the first rung of the spiritual ladder. For your neighbor, you might be their only connection with God, their only connection with Jesus. And if you're too busy to do nothing but think about them, you can never offer anything more than thoughts and prayers because you're just too busy. You might need to look at things and you might need to say no to some things to create some margin. And I know that's harsh. I know it's very difficult to look at. I, I get it. But that story invites us to create space in our life to where we can say, how can I help? Now, let's look at something exciting. This is a theme in the Bible and, and man, this, this, shouldn't, this is consistent, and this should inspire you. This woman comes to Elisha with real need. <clears throat> this is real need. This is not, you know, one of our typical, oh, I can't believe this happened to me. Like, you know, my car wouldn't start in the Longhorn parking lot. Then I had to Uber home to my 2,500-square-foot suburban this is real need. And she comes to Elisha, and Elisha says, what do you have? What do you have? Start with what you have. When God calls Moses to liberate the Israelites from Egypt, Moses is like, I can't do that. And God says, what do you have? Moses says, I have this staff. And God uses that to do the miraculous. When Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I want you to feed these thousands of people. They're like, we don't have any food. He's like, what do you have? Just some bread and fish. Like this is a theme where God says, what do you have? Where someone approaches God and they're empty. Where they don't have enough for the day. They don't have enough for the task. They're They're, they're empty. In some ways you could say they're useless because they're empty. And God says, well, what do, you have? what do you have? Let's take a look at what you have. And there's a theme then. Whatever that is, it's enough. And I've seen this in many ways. I'm, let me tell you a personal story here. And I, I have seen this. <clears throat> My mom, part-time hairdresser, 
um, blue-collar family, uh, no real leadership uh, experience, um, uh, certainly not a spiritual giant at the time. Empty nester, I had just went away to college, and, um, and meanwhile, our, our church, which was in a pretty prominent area, and there were a lot of, of big deal people that went to our church. I shouldn't, you know, I mean, think the best about me saying that, but we're talking about, you know, executives and, and college educated um, and, and lots of, you know, board experience, strategic experience, whatever. Like, there were a lot of somebodies from the worldly standards that went to my church as it started to explode in growth. Like it just felt like God was doing stuff all around. And my mom kind of felt like, like she wanted to be a part of what God was doing around her. But more than even that, she just wanted to be used by God. She was at this age where she was like, okay, what am I going to do now? Empty nest, what, I, I want to be used by God. But, but she didn't, you know, Look at, she was a hairdresser, part-time hairdresser. That was kind of her identity. And, and not, not a lot of the, the larger global skills, whatever, that, that you would look to and say, man, there, that's what it takes to, to do something big. So she basically told God, <clears throat> what I do have is an hour. I'll give you an hour in the morning every day, God. And she had a notebook and a Bible. She had an hour, a notebook, and a Bible, and that's what she had. I got an hour, I got a notebook, and I got a Bible, and I'll give you every day, God, one hour with my Bible and my notebook, and whatever you want to do through that, let's do it. And she started. And it wasn't long before God would lay on her heart things to pray for for people. I've seen this. Okay, I've seen this. And she would talk with that person and say, hey, I just want you to know I felt like I needed to pray about X. And it would be spot on. Like, like psychic stuff, okay? But, but it came through like prayer, like God speaking to her and spot on. There was one point when she would, and this wasn't one incident, but there, this was probably the most extreme version of it, where there was something she felt like she needed to tell somebody a little, little bit closer than an acquaintance, but not like a family member. Didn't know them really well. Didn't want to tell them <clears throat> this kind of rebuke. So she prayed, God, I will tell... It's like an ultimatum, which I don't necessarily recommend, but she said, God, I will be obedient and tell them this if, if you put them right in front of my face today. Like, here's the, here's the stipulations for my obedience. She collided with them in Lowe's that day. Like that person that she said ran into them physically at Lowe's. And that was the kind of thing that began to happen through her mom. And then uh, she, she began to speak into the lives of those church leaders. And, and they, they uh, were so confident in mom's ability to hear from God from that one hour that she offered him every day that they would basically tell everybody, uh, you come and get me out of any meeting that I'm in if Marion Poindexter calls with, with a word from God. And then she was invited to be a part of, of these committees, and then she would be, you know, she'd be crying because there she is, the part-time hairdresser, feeling completely inadequate with these, with these CEOs and board members and executives and leadership, whatever, whatever. And there was one voice that they wanted to listen to more than anyone. It was Marion Poindexter because of her one hour with a notebook and a Bible. She offered what she had, time and a notebook and a Bible. And I'm going to tell you something. 
and I mean this as much as anything I ever say from here, if just like five of you would offer that up to God, one hour with a notebook and a Bible, this church would never be the same. I mean, we're pretty healthy, but this church would never be the same. And this community would never be the same, and you would be in the middle of it. Start with what you have. For some of you, it's a skill. For some of you, it's a story, like, a, like an addiction that you've overcome. I don't know what it is that you have. But when you start by offering up to God what you have, you will be amazed at what God does with that. One last piece here to look through, and again, there, this is just what I'm looking through. It's, this is by no means exhaustive. You can look into this story and break it down all Okay, here we go. God didn't tell her, Elisha didn't tell her, speaking on behalf of God, to find big jars, small jars, new jars, old jars. There was one qualification for the jar. What was it? It had to be empty. had to be empty. An empty jar could be filled with oil and used to do the miraculous. I think God wanted us to see something. God, God, like, he could have given her, a, a, you know, here's a duffel bag of cash. But instead, God wanted to use empty jars to be filled with oil to do the impossible, to do the miraculous, to meet the need in its entirety. Empty jars filled with oil. Now, in Scripture, time and again, Pottery is used as an example of humanity, and oil is used as an example of God, the presence of God, or the Holy Spirit. When we empty ourselves, or when we find ourselves empty, these jars were useless to their owners. They had no purpose. They were unwanted, essentially. They were given away. No matter how empty or useless the jar It could be filled with oil and used for the miraculous. Emptiness is what God is looking for. And the scriptures are very clear. No matter how empty you are, no matter how purposeless you are, you are in in a great place to start. Because when we come to God broken and in need of Him and in need of only Him, where only He can do something, that's when He fills us. The Bible is completely clear when we approach Jesus who has paid our death penalty for us. When we approach him and ask to be filled, the presence of God flows through us and it will forevermore. And what we find in those moments of complete emptiness when we invite Jesus to fill us up is that really that's what we need. That's more than enough. And when we get to that point in our brokenness and we learn that lesson, that's all we really ever need. All you really need, no matter how broken, no matter how far, no matter how useless, no matter, I don't care where, when, when you experience the presence of Jesus fill your broken life and do something with it, that's all we really need. I'm going to close with this one last scripture in 2 Corinthians. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Now, I know that's a little bit churchy in its language, but what he's saying is we are jars of clay. It's supposed to be that way. We are not impressive, but God loves to flow through the impressive, the, bro- the unimpressive, the broken, the empty. He loves to fill us up with his presence and ultimately to show the world through us who he is. That's what life's all about. That's where the real joy, the real fulfillment, the real pleasure in life, it comes through that process of God flowing through empty, broken jars like that oil flowed through empty jars in the hands of that widow. One last song, I want to invite you to stand. And, and man, I hope that, if nothing else, that message finds you today. If you're broken, if you're empty, if you feel like you have nothing to give, that we could ask God to be our enough. And if you found that to be true, then, then this is your opportunity to confess and, and just thank God for being your enough. Let's pray. Father, uh, you are all that matters in this world. Your promise is that you would flow through us. And right now I want to pray that even as we sing this, that we could feel you flowing, that oil, your presence flowing through these empty jars, these broken jars, and that we would sense a greater sense of purpose and energy and usefulness as we connect with you like we were meant to. In Jesus' name, amen.